Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome everyone to the 31st episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week we are going to be talking about how we tend to search for big, new, and complicated solutions to our relationship problems in all sorts of places outside of us, like books and blogs and podcasts, when the actual solutions to our relationship problems can actually be heard within us. And those solutions are usually small, familiar, and obvious. But first, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage. It's called The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. It explores how to reclaim marriage from the consumer culture mindset that has infected it and make it into the kind of beautiful rebellion it is meant to be. So if you haven't already picked it up, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. And sign up at the top of the right sidebar. You'll get the ebook right away. And then you'll also have an opportunity to sign up for my mailing list. If you do, each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Also, when you do that, you'll get a free sample of Lovable. Um, But of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can get it. You can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold in paperback, digital, and audio. So go to your favorite place to get books and, and pick it up. All right, on to this week's episode, how to begin healing our relationships in small, familiar, and obvious ways. I hope it helps, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 30 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled Letting Grace Show Us How to Love. Today, we're going to talk about how we search for complicated solutions to our relationship problems, but how oftentimes building true belonging may begin with simple, and familiar gestures and how the wisdom about those gestures resides within us, not outside of us in some other person or book or podcast. Before we get into this week though, let's check in. Last week we talked about finding your places of true belonging by asking for help and watching for who comes running toward you in times of trouble. Did you have any experiences with that this week or do you have any reflections upon the experience of asking for help, anything that you want to share or anything at all about this year of listening, loving, and living? Heather writes, I've done nothing but ask for help these last two weeks, and the response has been nothing but a godsend. Um, Heather, so that just, thank you for that. Um, Number one, thanks for the courage to ask for help, um, especially in a time of intense vulnerability. Um, But thanks for that affirmation that um, the consistent response has been yes. Um, And and again, that I think when when we have the courage to ask, Um, when we have the courage to be specific about our ask, I need help in this way, that you discover that people really want to help. Um, And I'm so glad that that's been your experience this week. Um, You are certainly worthy of the help you've received. 
Amanda writes, I'm new here, just popped in, so nothing to say about last week, but what you just said is so true. Asking for help isn't easy, but shows you who your true friends are. Um, yeah, that's so um, that's been that was sort of the focus of last week, Amanda, was that um, that it's it can be you can be a little bit uncertain when when you're a trouble free person, when you don't really need anything from anybody, when you're just constantly giving and constantly making life easier on everybody else. The the question that sort of lurks in the background is, okay, uh, these people want to be with me when I'm easy. Well, they want to be with me when I'm when I'm in need, and and so to have the courage that's a, it's a really it's a test of our own sense of worthiness. Do I believe I'm worthy of love and belonging even when I'm in need? And so to have that courage to ask and then to have that affirmed, yes, you are. We want to be with you even in your time of need. That's when you begin to discover your your friendships and your places of true belonging. Sherry writes, this winter we had our heater go out and my husband asked online to a group of our friends for help because we were so broke and the help we received was overwhelming. God is truly good. Most of them asked us not to pay them back, but to pay it forward. What a beautiful thing. Don't we need, I mean, Sherry, thank you for sharing that. Um, We need to hear those stories. We need to be reminded that this is underneath all of the protection and self-preservation and ego, um, that that there's a, a basic desire for human beings to be of help to each other. Um, and we need to hear stories like that, Sherry, to have, to have ourselves reminded of that truth so that we can begin to draw upon that good thing at the center of people, give people a chance to be fully human, to live into their instinct to, to care for each other and to be in connection. So thank you for that reminder. And, uh, just uh, I'm 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 being blessed by hearing these stories already this morning. Deb F writes, I think when you come from a place of honesty and are sincere, people respond to that. Yep, I think that's true. Um, and Deb, I think it goes back to uh, a point. I forget who made the point last week, but um, maybe it was Deb W. Maybe it was you, Deb F. But to ask early, like not to wait till the crisis is overwhelming, but to ask early um, and. Uh, um, and to, to not be coming to that asking for help from a place of desperation, but just from a place of honesty and sincerity. Hey, this thing is getting too much for me. Can I have some help? And uh, um, I think when we can come from that place too, it's even more inviting to people. It's less overwhelming to them, and, and they're more than, more than happy to help. Marie writes, also had a car accident, car totaled, with my husband and kids in the car. Everyone was okay, but had to ask for a ride from an Uber an Uber, not an Uber, but a very busy friend who was super glad to drop everything to give us a ride home. A huge return of shame on so many levels to work through, but my friend's parting words helped so much in turning down the voice of shame. Quote, I'll call you tomorrow to check in and see how you're doing, unquote. Felt so incredibly cared for. She's a keeper. Again, Marie, thank you for that beautiful story, right? The voice of shame is going, oh my gosh, you inconvenience this person. Um, you know, one one shortcut to identifying the voice of shame within you is I'm not blank enough. But the more subtle flip side of that is I'm too blank, right? I'm too much of a burden. I was too much of an inconvenience today to reach out and ask for this ride and ask for this help. And, uh, and you did it. And this friend communicated beautifully. No, it wasn't too much. In fact, I'm going to do more for you. I'm going to, I'm going to reach out for you tomorrow. Um, so let's catch the voice of shame saying, well, you're too much. You're too needy. You're too much of a burden. 
and instead give people a chance to show us that we are not too much of anything or not enough of anything, but we're just right and that they want to belong to us. Sashi writes, so sorry to hear that, Marie. Thank God everyone is okay. Yes, exactly. So as we're talking today, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing about, you know, car accidents and we've talked about relationship problems and there was this shooting in our town last week. And I'm thinking about how just in this one group, uh, right now there are about 30 people involved, um, but only a fraction of you have spoken up in this one small group, just how much brush with our frailty and our fragility and our mortality and our brokenness and how much of that is present even in this group. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is no wonder everyone is overwhelmed right now. When we're constantly turned, tuned into news feeds and constantly receiving notifications about all of the frailty and mortality and brokenness everywhere, folks, we got enough to handle in this group of 30 people. Um, and it's something that I had not thought about until this moment, but um, maybe one of the things we, we can focus on doing too with our places of belonging is saying, you know what? I'm gonna turn off my connection to all of the tragedy and brokenness everywhere else. And I'm gonna focus in with this group. I'm gonna focus on being a help and allowing myself to be helped with this group of people. Um, and so in a way, sort of turning back the clock maybe 100 years <laughs> where you had your small community around you and that those were the people um, that you belonged to and that you helped and were helped by. Um, and so maybe that's one way too we can enhance our circles of belonging is really dialing all of our attention into the hurt and the suffering amongst our people rather than amongst people everywhere. Sashi writes, what about not feeling like I belong to my adult daughters who don't live in my city country? They're always busy and sound irritated when I call. What should I do? So Sashi, it's a great question and I'm aware of a couple things in responding to you. Um, number one, I'm aware that uh, um, I don't know the specifics of your situation and um, every situation is different. And so if you, want a, a if you want a really educated response to your question, my, my first response is um, it couldn't hurt to talk to somebody, um, whether it's a, a counselor or a mentor or a trusted elder that uh, can be really familiar with your situation. That's always a good idea. Um, in general, um, what I often find myself reflecting to parents of young adults is, and even mid-adults is that's normal. Um, it's, it's normal at that stage of life. I mean, it's all about going out into the world and establishing yourself and separating from your home. Um, that if our kids weren't moving towards that kind of independence, um, we would be concerned about them. And there's plenty of kids we are these days concerned about who aren't launching. Um, so your kids are, are becoming independent. They're sort of focused on themselves and that's exactly the way it goes. Actually a normal, healthy development. What hopefully happens is they begin to correct because they're swinging in one direction. They were dependent upon you for years. Now they're they're moving towards total independence and they sort of don't want anything to do with you at all. And that as they begin to progress through life and begin to reach some of those milestones of their own marriage, uh, you know, um, sometimes child rearing, those sorts of things can then stimulate them to swing back to a kind of a healthier middle ground where they exist in relationship to you, but still independence. So um, it's a pretty normal stage. And if you think that there's something abnormal about it, that there's a, a dysfunction going on in the relationship there, then definitely feel free to, to reach out and talk to somebody that you trust who can counsel you well. 
Mary writes, Hi, Dr. Flanagan. Regarding adult children, it has helped me to reflect on how I was with my parents at that age. I always conclude that my kids are doing just fine. Oh, that's really helpful, Mary. Thank you for that. That's a great way to phrase it. Um, yeah, right. I mean, I, um, when I was, when I was in my mid twenties, um, I was, uh, completely self-absorbed, <laughs> uh, with my education and my career and, um, dating my now wife. And I mean, it, that, it was all about that. And that's sort of how it's supposed to be at that age. So thanks for that reminder. If we can check in on how we were, um, that can sometimes help us to understand them. Trieste has a great question. How do you ask for the help you need and remain respectful of a partner's wish to keep information private? Trias, I get the sense that there's a lot of um, a lot of information behind that question that I don't fully understand. Um, I think my my gut reaction to your question is um, that your partner's wish for privacy is a boundary that they get to decide that they choose. And uh, your request for help is a, a, a way to have a voice of your own. And, and so if your voice, your request for help, comes up against their boundary for privacy and they can't provide help for some reason because of their privacy, <clears throat> that's when there are, um, if that is consistently happening, habitually happening, that's, that's when maybe some tough conversations need to happen, right, in, in places of belonging, which is I keep finding myself needing help, asking for help from you, but... Um, you're unavailable because so much of you is kept private and kept separate from me. And what are we going to do about that? So to me, it's the it's, it's the point of initiating a conversation rather than demanding less privacy, rather than but just saying, hey, this is a disconnect that's happening here. What are we going to do about it? And seeing if the person can, can rise to that level of connection. Um, again, beyond that, the, the specifics of your situation, um, my guess is, are probably complicated and probably worth talking to someone about who uh, is, is more familiar with all the details, you know. Julie writes, I'm recalling a moment in Jacob Have I Loved where the 13-year-old protagonist mom reassures her that she has never been a moment's worry and the young lady laments internally that she wants to be worried about. The gist is that there's belonging in that. You know, Julie, that's a really astute observation um, that we want to keep our places of belonging really safe, relatively safe, by saying, okay, I won't, I won't be too much of a burden on you. I won't worry you. But a place of belonging is a, is a place where you can worry someone and they still want to be with you, right? <laughs> um, and I love that. I love that reminder of that. Um, I, to tell you the truth, you know, when I talk to adults, some of the adults who had the loneliest childhoods are the ones whose parents would have said about them, oh, they're super easy never had to worry about them you know they just took care of themselves <laughs> and uh and probably what was happening there was at least in the in the young person was a, a sense of shame of oh i can't i can't be a burden or i won't have a place to belong here and so they were sort of overly independent trying to minimize the uh, the pressure on the adults in the space and and so yeah so for like a, a parent to be able to say Oh my goodness, you worried the heck out of me and I wouldn't have changed a minute of it. Oh, what a, what a place of belonging that is. What a place of belonging. Julie writes, following up, your response has me thinking about my tendency to reassure people not to worry, which I've been dialing back lately in favor of saying what I'm struggling with when appropriate instead of only painting the hopeful picture. Yeah, I think that dovetails exactly with what I was saying. 
Um, because when you ask for help, you're inviting people to worry about you, right? Um, and uh, and we maybe maybe part of that reassurance, oh, don't worry about me, is saying I don't want to be a burden. And saying worry about me is I, I, I choose to let myself burden you and uh, and see if, if you're one of those people in my life who's going to be able to carry that burden with me. So um, I think there's wisdom in that instinct, Julie, for sure. Missy writes, I am a natural helper I'm in a hel and I'm in a helping profession. I recently had to have surgery that required help. As I reflect on the last three months and listen to your responses, I realize I was potentially not giving myself the opportunity to feel like I belong when I was struggling with asking for help. I'm so grateful I did ask for the help as it really lightened the load. And isn't that how life is supposed to be lived? Yep. Um, and Missy, I think people in helping professions get into them because their strength is helping, is, is giving, not receiving. And, uh, and so I think for helpers like yourself, when you get into that position of needing to be cared for, I know I experienced this personally. It's a it's a it's a challenge to shift modes and allow yourself to be in the other role. Good for you for doing it, and and again being affirmed um, that people are eager to help and eager to 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 help you feel that you belong to them. Thank you. Trias writes: I grew up in a dysfunctional home. Expressing my needs remains a struggle. I end up messing up my words and told repeatedly I can't guilt others. I get more afraid to ask. Wow. Yeah. Trias, we gosh. It's, it's a good reminder, Trias, that, that my kids, for the most part, I can't, don't really hesitate to ask for anything. <laughs> they don't hesitate to ask for help until they start to receive a message that they're asking is a burden, right? Or um, that, it, you know, that they're doing something bad to me emotionally by by asking for help so i think you're not alone that we all learn messages along the way that sort of convince us um that asking for your needs to be met is bad and uh and we have to be able to to, to discern where that message came from originally and confront it as untrue right so that we can continue to ask for help shelly writes i am not a good patient <laughs> i do not like to receive help but your words of being a burden as the reason spoke to me I have found that I am more of a burden when I do not accept help, if that makes sense. I have learned I have to get out of God's way and let him do the work and let others give blessings. Boy, that's an insight, isn't it, Shelley? Um, and sometimes sometimes for those of us who don't like to be a burden, um, it's, a, it's a good way to motivate ourselves to change, to go, actually, when you're trying not to be a burden, you're probably actually making things more complicated for people. Um, you're not giving them a chance to, to exercise their best parts, you know? Um, and so that could be sometimes a way of undoing some habits. So I appreciate that. I think it is true that, you know, when we go out of our way not to be a burden to people, we complicate things. Shelley writes, thank you for making it easy for me to step out. I am most grateful. I like the feeling of belonging to others. I'm having trouble getting my thoughts out this morning, having one of those mornings. Maybe there's the more coffee will help, right? I am just so very grateful and it feels so nice to feel like we belong to a tribe and can just be. Yep, there it is, Shelly. Yeah, you're in this space. The words aren't coming this morning. It's hard to get your thoughts out and that's okay. Um, you get to be yeah, verbally clumsy today <laughs> and that's fine. We're all right with it. Um, I know you all have been graceful to me when I've been verbally clumsy uh, more, you know, more than once. So um, we are happy to return that to you. Thanks as always for another wonderful discussion, everyone. Um, I know personally, 
I am encouraged by hearing your stories of reaching out, asking for help, and being both surprised and moved and touched by the response, um, and that that's the consistent the consistent um, experience, not one of disappointment and rejection. So I'm so encouraged by that today. I think that's the truth about how we people work, and uh, and you've affirmed that. So thank you. So let's continue this discussion now by transitioning into this week's reading from the companion book. Um, now. I want to say one thing uh, before I jump right into it, which is, um, you know, in, in Lovable and in the months of listening, we focus and we're cultivating a sense of worthiness and embracing who we are. In those, in those parts, we focused a lot on the voice of grace and allowing the voice of grace to speak to us about our belovedness, that we are lovable, kind of discovering our sense of identity in that. Um, but there, there is a there is a, a subtle theme in lovable as well that if, as we move into the months of belonging and into our relationships, the voice of grace shifts from um, the focus on the voice of grace shifts from um, whispering to us of our worthiness, telling us about our our truest self and our identity, and it becomes a guide in our relationships. Um, it is it has first taught us that we are lovable, and then it shows us how to love and how to cultivate places of true belonging and how to set um, thoughtful, caring boundaries rather than aggressive ones, for instance. So this this chapter from the companion book really develops that theme of not just listening for the voice of grace as a reminder of our truest self, um, but listening for the voice of grace as a reminder about how we can love our people best. So with that said, here we go. Week 30, letting grace show us how to love. Several winters ago in Chicago, we found ourselves in the middle of a polar vortex. The thermostat hovered around zero. The schools were frequently closed. It was painful to go outside. And my wife went to New Orleans without me. It was a business trip, and she went out of her way to make provisions for the kids and me. She even flew her mother in to help with childcare while I was at work. Nevertheless, on the night the thermostat short-circuited and I discovered dog poop wedged in the couch cushions, she sent me a video of her enjoying Bourbon Street and I got as bitter as the weather outside. When that happens, when I feel like I'm on my own and nobody cares about me, I put a big invisible wall between me and everybody I love. When she returned from New Orleans a few days later, I wanted to be good to her, but to be honest, I also didn't want to, so I wasn't. The problem is, after a few weeks behind my walls, I was lonelier than ever and I just wanted my wife back. I couldn't figure out how to accomplish it though. I felt like something big needed to change, like I needed to orchestrate something new and epic. I got away for an evening to brainstorm ideas, but I couldn't come up with anything, until I realized I had fallen prey to three big fallacies about how to truly love someone. Number one, we think the key to loving well is a mystery. As a marital therapist, couples come to me to save their marriage or make it grow. They think I hold the answers. They think they don't know how to do it. Most of us think we have to read a bunch of books or talk to a bunch of counselors to discover the hidden solutions to love and relationships. Number two. We believe something new must happen to get a relationship firing on all cylinders again. It's a consumer approach to love. When it's broken, we shop for something new to fix it. It's a medical approach to love. When a relationship is ailing, we try a new medicine to heal it. Number three, we think the new thing must be big. We think our relationships require open heart surgery, not penicillin. Which is why, in marriage, for instance, we end up having kids to save the marriage or going on expensive vacations to rekindle a cooling love, or buying a new house, or orchestrating extravagant dates, or having big fights. When the problem feels insurmountable, we assume the solution must be big as well. Yet, 
Loving relationships aren't destroyed by a lack of knowledge, lack of innovation, or lack of grandeur. They are destroyed by ego. And it is ego that keeps us from hearing the voice inside, which is whispering the answers we already know about how to make our relationships come alive. On the night I got away to come up with some mysterious, innovative, and grand ways to get my marriage back on track, I sat in a quiet nook and observed my ego doing its thing. It had put up the wall between my wife and I, and now my ego was trying to take the wall down the wall that it had erected. My ego is attached to shiny new things, grand displays, and sophisticated answers and solutions. I watched my ego do its thing and I realized it was masking the real answers. So I stopped watching my ego and I began listening for the voice beneath my ego. The voice I call grace because it is the voice in me that knows exactly how to love. As I listened, I heard this. You haven't put her first in years. And then I heard four very specific answers. Kiss her on the forehead first thing every morning. Say goodbye to her last before leaving the house each day. Send her one text every day while apart. And say hello to her first when you walk in the door at night. The answers were not mysterious, new, and grand. The answers were obvious, old, and small. Relationships do not thrive on big things. They thrive upon small things done every day. They don't thrive necessarily on doing new things. They thrive upon doing old things we used to do and quit doing somewhere along the way. And if we can set aside our ego for a little while, we don't need anyone to tell us what those things are. We already know. Beneath all of our hiding and pretending and protecting and defending and accusing and criticizing, there's a voice always whispering the answer. Relationships can change on a dime, and that dime is the moment we look past our ego and listen to the voice of grace within us. What we hear will be obvious, old, and small, but it will also be unique and specific to who we are and to the love we share, because the voice of grace is that good. So that is this week's reading. Um, and I had this voice speaking in the back of my head as I read it, um, saying, Kelly, um, you need to remind you need to remind people that um, while all of this is true, um, sometimes there are bigger truths going on in relationships that need to be dealt with too. So I don't want I don't want this to to sound like I'm trying to oversimplify any very very complicated um, brokenness, hurt, and wounds that have happened in relationships. Um, when those are present, um, it uh, it goes beyond you know it goes beyond a simple a simple kiss when you get home right from work, but um, what this is trying to speak to is that we can sort of, um, we can enrich, um, we can enhance, we can cultivate, um, our places of belonging by doing things that are not terribly extravagant or unfamiliar, but by doing things that we already know, already know could enhance the relationship, but for some reason aren't doing because we're not prioritizing them because it feels too vulnerable or whatever, but that we might already have the answers within us. Um, but it is not the solution to every every relationship situation. And so I wanna just say that out front. As you're thinking about the reading, um, as you're thinking about that challenge to not be looking for sort of grand solutions, big fixes, um, but listening for your inner wisdom about how to um, slowly begin to bring relationships to life. As I'm thinking, it's like, it's sort of like, 
we've been talking a lot about cultivating new belonging and that this is really about um, resurrecting belonging in places where it started to to fade. Um, and there are those relationships in our lives too. So um, we'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Marie writes, I tend to think there's another solution because I'm missing something, but maybe it would be good to have faith in what's been given me already. Um, yeah, I I think you're pulling out sort of the the nugget of um, insight in that post pretty well, Marie, which is um, is rededicating ourselves to the things that have worked before, um, and doing so with consistency and intentionality um, every day, for instance, rather than looking for that um, that that. You know, to, for lack of a better word, that magic pill that will, will sort of solve it all at once, um, but sort of rededicating ourselves to that. And next week, we're going to get even more specific about that. Um, we'll have a practice this week that will get you thinking in those along those lines, and then next week, we're going to talk about really uh, getting specific and digging deep on one specific area where you can be really intentional and consistent. Sashi writes, listening to my voice of grace is such a new concept for me. Love it. I'm so glad to hear that, Sashi, because, uh, yeah, I, I do want to reemphasize that um, it's not like back in in uh, the months of listening, we were sort of using the voice of grace, right, to get reconnected with our worthiness and then we leave it behind. Um, to embrace to embrace our worthiness, to embrace our true self is to, to discover um, that that voice of grace is, um, is present and that we can turn to it not just for um, a reminder about who we are, but for instruction about how to how to live and be in relationship and love. So um, I hope I hope our our awareness and attention to that voice within us is um, something that we're dedicating ourselves to. Heather writes, "My voice of grace seems to be missing at the moment. At some point, I'll get it back, but now it's all covered with anger and hurt." Yep, that's um. So Heather, one of my thank you for for sharing that because I think people need to be reminded that it's okay to go through seasons where there's a sense of disconnection from that voice where you just can't hear it. Um, you know, it's the it's been referenced as the dark night of the soul. Um, you know, I think there are, there one way in my faith tradition. You know, it, it's sort of startling at the end of Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross and he, he cries out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a sense that he too has lost. He can't hear the voice of grace within him at that point. Um, and that the pain and the agony of that moment just overwhelmed that voice. Um, and, uh, and then he says, but into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, out of faith I will, cont I will continue to move toward you, I'll continue to be present to you. And so Heather, I think, I think where you're at, kind of saying... I can't hear the voice of grace, the anger and the hurt are too much right now, um, but I will continue to listen. And as I continue to heal that anger and that hurt, that voice of grace will return to me. I think that's exactly how it works. And there's probably a lot of people who need to be reminded that uh, that sort of faith, <laughs> faith in the presence of that voice uh, can sustain us through times of anger and hurt as we listen for it to return. Deb F. writes, you know, Heather, I flip-flop between grace and anger. It's a work in progress for me. It's easy to be gracious when you're dealing with gracious people. The anger has its place, too. It took me a while to learn that as well. I would actually, I think, Deb F., you're bringing up a really, really, really good point, um, which is that sometimes anger is the voice of grace as well. I'll go back to my faith tradition, right? The, um, 
that there are a number of times in the story of Jesus where he acts out in anger, um, where he calls out mistreatment, injustice, devaluing of other people, manipulation and using of other people, and he calls it out angrily, and sometimes not even like impulsively, like sometimes it's premeditated. There's a story where he actually fashions a whip <laughs> and then goes into the temple and starts turning over tables. Like this is a guy who knows there is a place for just anger. And, uh, um, and so sometimes when our reaction to, to the wounding is anger, that is the voice of grace as well. And so we need to listen to that anger, not necessarily act out on it, but listen to it. And gradually we'll begin to hear the rest of what that voice has to say to us. Um, but to attend to it, to listen to it, to not try to press that anger down, make it go away, um, but to let it teach us about uh, how we want to be loved and how we insist on being loved. Hmm, Brenda writes, hmm, anger is grace. Brenda, I wrote a blog post about that a long time ago, and like it was like crickets. Nobody could get on board with that idea. Um, I, 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 I believe it more than ever. I probably wrote that blog post five years ago, four years ago. I believe it more than ever, though. Um, and um, I believe that there there is a critical place for our anger, especially in the early stages of healing. And uh, talk about that a little bit in Lovable. And, uh, and when we push that anger away, deny it, try to get past it very quickly, treat it as bad, um, we're, we're, sac we're, we're sort of missing the first step in our healing process. So, um, and getting reconnected with that voice of grace and our sense of worthiness. Brenda writes, took me over a week to allow myself to feel angry about the accident. Recalling some words from this group helped me acknowledge it as part of healing in the grieving process. Thanks for the help and belonging in silence. Yeah, absolutely, Brenda. Yeah, in the in the in the in the grieving stages of grief in that model, right? The the very first emotional experience denial is that it's not have not there's no loss happening here. There's nothing to grieve, there's no trauma. The very first emotion you're supposed to experience in the grieving process is anger. And so if we if we subvert that, if we try to minimize that and not have that, we don't get to continue to move through the grieving and healing process. So um I'm glad that I'm glad, Brenda, that the um, the experiences from this group could encourage you to let that grieving happen. Julie writes, I think it's a work in progress for everyone, whether we are aware of it or not. Yep, that is so true. And sometimes, right, Julie, sometimes we're more aware of it than others. You know, we just go through those seasons where it's, it's more obvious that we're a work in progress and seasons where it's uh, a little bit less obvious, <laughs> but the reality of it doesn't change. Carrie Lynn writes, One day I was cleaning up after a birthday party for my then 10-year-old son. It was an especially hard day as his father was supposed to come and didn't show. So of course I pulled out all the stops to try to make it the best birthday ever for him. As a single mom, I was feeling overwhelmed by sadness and loneliness and how incredibly exhausted physically and emotionally I was for me, for my son. The party was over. I was outside by myself cleaning up this epic party and tears began to slide down my face. I had no words, no thoughts, just feelings. I went to pick up a slip and slide that we used, and it was full of water and so heavy, I thought I was on the brink of a full-out emotional collapse, but as I continued to lift it to release the water, I heard the voice of Grace whisper, Here, let me help. A breeze kicked up and lifted the slip and slide, and it emptied all the weight of the water, and I was changed forever. I knew I was going to be okay. Wow, that is a very, very powerful story, and I... I don't know what changed. 
I don't know specifically what changed for you in that moment, but when I hear it, how that story affects me is I hear that our circumstances don't necessarily have to change completely as long as we know that we're not alone in them. Um, and that is why these months of belonging are so important that we come to discover in the months of listening that we're not alone, even when we're in a room by ourselves, because the voice of grace is present to us. Um, and then we begin to expand that sense of belonging to our relationships. Um, but yes, you are not alone. I'm here with you. I'll help. What a beautiful story, Sherry. Okay, thanks again um, for just a really another helpful discussion. Let's let's get practical now, and we're going to talk about three ways you can begin listening for the voice of grace whispering within you when it comes to this idea of cultivating your relationships. The week 30 practice. This week we're going to focus on breathing not really new, but old life into the love and belonging you already have. Probably you have felt at a loss about how to fix, heal, redeem, renew, or refresh an important relationship in your life. This week, I want you to find a nook, and in that quiet space, first listen for your ego. Listen for its suggestions that something extravagant and big must happen. Then, slowly, turn your attention once again to the voice of grace and start listening for three things by asking three specific questions. Number one, listen for the small things by asking, what are three little things I could regularly do to show my love? Number two, Listen for the old things by asking, what are three loving things I used to do in this relationship at the beginning that I could begin doing once again? And number three, listen for the obvious things by asking, what has this person been asking from me all along? And how can I begin to do one or two of those things right now? It isn't lack of knowledge that extinguishes love and relationship, it's our failure to listen to the knowledgeable voice of grace within us. Doing so may not lead to extraordinary changes, but love isn't supposed to be extraordinary. It's small, ancient, and sublime, and it happens every day. So this week, don't try to implement all the insights gleaned from answering the questions above. Remember, grandiosity is rarely an act of love. Instead, pick one or two to act upon this week and be intentional about doing so. So that's the, the practice for this week. The, the focus being um, let's, let's shift our focus from big solutions, grand solutions, all at once solutions to the much smaller, more subtle ways that we can consistently be intentional about cultivating belonging in our relationships. Um, so I'd love to hear if you have any reactions to that before we wrap up for today. Margie writes, my husband and I have recently become empty nesters and are finding ourselves anew again. Love the suggestions, remembering the things that brought us together, the little things we can do for each other to express our love. So important. Yeah. Um, good. I'm Margie. I'm glad that this comes at the right time for, for where you're at in your relationship. And, uh, it ideally, I think, you know, it sounds like to me, you know, what you're saying is, well, I don't find myself in crisis in relationship. Um, I find myself at a point where, we're ready to renew things. And, um, and so, yeah, ideally this practice would be something that isn't practiced just when things get really rough. Um, and when you sort of need to be rescued from that roughness, but it'd be something that is regularly practiced over the course of a relationship. Um, and, uh, and we can do that at any point in any of our relationships. Now that can, that could become our focus is in this relationship. How am I going to practice the small, old and obvious things and practice them in an intentional way to enrich the relationship. We can, we can do that whenever. We don't have to wait for the crisis. 
Okay, uh, I know I know we could keep talking about this, but let's wrap up the discussion here for today. And next week, we're going to dig even deeper into some of these ideas with week 31 of the year of Listening, Loving, and Living, which is entitled Turning Pro at the Art of Loving. Until then, remember, you are lovable and you know how to love. You simply need to listen for the voice of love within you. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>